2: Free FM 89.0 Now we present Big Things Ahead a Free FM series in which Paul Barlow tackles the big things facing Kirikiriroa Hamilton the three waters reforms representation, growth, infrastructure iwi and youth participation and decision making and climate change For more episodes of Big Things Ahead visit freefm.org.nz Spotify or Apple Podcasts and search for Big Things Ahead Welcome to Big Things Ahead, a new series here on Free FM with me, Paul Barlow, where we look at some of the big changes coming to Kirikirai Hamilton that are going to shape the city going forward into the future. This week we're looking at the local government review, a massive undertaking from central government to reshape how local government is going to look and work in the future. So let's start with the basics. In 2002, the Local Government Act was put in place to restructure how local governments work and operate and the sort of services that they'd be offering to the people that voted them in. In 1989, there was a massive local government shakeup which actually resulted in the creation of regional councils designed to work and look after the environment and your local councils which are designed to make sure that people living within those cities got the services that they required. However, for the last 5 or 6 years there's been noise about re- shaping those acts, because the world has evolved and changed so much in that time. In April of this year, the local government minister, the Honourable Nanaia Mahuta, put in place the steps to start the reporting process on the changes that could come to local government. Now, this is a long process, and the final version of whatever happens isn't really going to be seen by the public until 2024 when it gets announced, and it will then roll over into the next triennial election, which should be 2025, so people have about a year or so to prepare for whatever changes come on board with this. The big changes that are expected are going to be boundary shifts or the loss of a couple of local authorities. And around the country, there's a lot of different local authorities that this could affect of population, our largest local authority is actually Auckland Super City with 1.7 million people to look after. And our smallest is Chatham Islands with about 760. But in terms of physical size, Southland is our largest council because it covers such a large area. And the smallest is technically Kawaro. So you've got some really different areas with really different needs. And this reform process is designed to take a look at what those needs are and how to best service the people within those areas to be able to make sure that going forward, local government is set up to make sure that it can look after the needs of what they have. And one of the big challenges for any act like this is trying to predict what the future has in store which is almost impossible. If you had predicted 30 years ago the world that we look at today, you would have probably gotten quite a bit wrong. At the same time, trying to create an act now to deal with local governance structure for 30 years in the future, when you've got the effects of technology and climate change coming into play, that's a really big ask, which is one of the reasons why it's taken so long to get this sorted. But despite the process officially having started back in April of 2021, that doesn't mean that the changes or the reviews are actually out of the blue. I sat down and spoke with Hamilton Mayor Paula Southgate about this, and she's been involved with local councils on some level for close to 30 years. Before she was the mayor and before a councillor at Hamilton City Council, she worked with the Waikato Regional Council as a councillor there, so she's seen both types of local authority in action firsthand, and she's been well aware of the fact that changes have been on the table for a little while now.
1: This is one of those topics, a little bit like Three Waters, that actually has been in conversation since, well, since 2014 or so, with discussion documents. Having said that, I mean, we're at the pointy end of it now, the real pointy end. The Local Government Commission has been coming around the country holding workshops. Ewan and I attended one in Ohaupo. We just recently have repeated that exercise with the councillors. But they're very high level at this point in time. They're looking at what does local government look do well? What does local government not do so well? What are the reasons why our local government can't be optimal? What would we need to do about that? So it's operating at that kind of level at the moment. Having said that, the government behind the scenes are working very fast. You know, they've, they've got a mandate, they've got numbers to make change, I guess they're going to see how much positive change they can push through, or depending on what side you think of, un, um, un, uh, unpopular change. But either way. Lots of things are changing at the same
2: time. In initial reporting and, and investigating from central government, they've identified five key points that they think need to be focused on when it comes to reviewing how local government works and what those changes are going to be. Those five points are how should the system of local governance be reshaped so it can adapt to future challenges and enable communities to thrive? What are the future functions, roles and essential features of the New Zealand's system of local government? How might a system of local government embody authentic partnership under the Treaty of Waitangi, creating conditions of shared prosperity? What needs to be changed so local government and its leaders can best reflect and respond to the communities they serve? And what should change in local governance funding and financing to ensure viability and sustainability, fairness and equity and maximum well-being? And those are huge areas to cover under one law, which is one of the reasons why it takes so long to get this law right. And in the past, it hasn't necessarily worked out as well as it could have with people not really thinking properly when it comes to how you go about setting up local governance laws. Back in 2002, when that last reform happened, it was very much a Labour-led government with an alliance push on local government reform. I reached out to former Prime Minister Helen Clark, who declined to be interviewed for this, stating that she has very hazy memories of something that far back. And at the same time, she wasn't directly involved in. And she suggested I talk to the Alliance MPs that were involved in making that. Now, Sandra Lee Virko, who was at the time the minister of local government, very hard to get hold of these days. And she's pushing 75 and doesn't do a lot of media coverage. The other one was Rod Donald, who was co-leader of the Green Party at the time. And he passed away in 2005, making it much harder to talk to the people who built the law that's being looked at now. But I do have access to Mark Servian, who worked with Rod Donald and was a bit of a protege of his. And this is what he says about the creation of keeping it as local as possible for local government reform. Uh so the, the system, the, the uh, dear old
3: Rod Donald, who I, who was my mentor or who I was working with when he died, um, did a lot of great things. I mean, he gave he was a major player in the MMP thing. Um. One of his things when he was in Parliament, it might have been very early when he was still an Alliance MP, is he got reform made to the Local Electoral Act, which basically introduced the option of STV. Now, in typical Green style, and we see this reflected again on the Green Party's um, feedback at the moment about the water reforms, the Greens are localists. But at the same time, I also know that when you get down to the local level, it is the bigoted and the loudmouths and the, I mean, I really wish that the majority of people would engage with local bodies because then we'd all get what we want. But, but the fact of the matter is it's the, your, you, the, the perception of your impact that your council is having on your life impacts your engagement with the council. So if immediately, for instance, everyone who pays rent doesn't get a rates bill, doesn't feel the, the, the effect of the of the councils on their life, and so immediately phases out, starts phasing out, right? So renters are less likely to vote, much less likely to vote than mortgage holders, and we're in a world in which the number of people renting is increasing, right? I kind of disagree with what he did with that bill, with that electoral bill, was he basically made it the councillor's decision, each council's own decision as to what electoral system they would use, and that is... That is right. Up. I, I, I understand what he was trying to do. It was about local control. But actually, what he should have done was handed it to local electoral commissions, because politicians should not be voting for the elector. Politicians should not be voting and
2: designing systems. That is what happens in America. That's how you land up with a gerrymandered boundary system this report asks questions around the best way to govern create partnerships and ensure that you are getting the needs from local government or the needs of society provided through local government a big part of that is actually going to come down to the way that your local government representatives are selected at the moment under law they can choose what sort of voting system they have first pass the post versus stv and there's a really strong argument there for removing that choice away from elected officials because why would the turkey vote for the acts at christmas time is pretty much how it's been summed up to me across the board. That's a really big step in changing how democracy is going to work. So the changes that we've seen in Kirikiriroa, for example, where we've switched to ECV and Māori representation – they're really likely to end up being enshrined in law as something that has to be done to ensure that not only are we getting better representation across the country, but that we are upholding the principles of Te Tiriti or Waitangi and ensuring that there is a viable working partnership there between Māori and elected representatives. Because so far, Māori are really good at being brought on board and consulted with, but not seeing the outcomes from those consultations in a meaningful way that directly affects them. And that's really kind of shitty to be honest. Dr. Will Flavel from the Henderson-Massey Local Board in Tamaki Makoto sums it up really well when I asked him why we need to ensure that we've got that representation going forward and that it has to be enshrined as part of this process of reviewing how local government works. You know, I always say that if it's good for parliament then it's good for councils. I mean, so, you know, we see strong Maori representation at parliament level because they've got dedicated Maori seats, so why isn't that privilege be given to the, um, for councils. You know, if we don't have Māori representation at the table, we're losing authentic, an authentic voice. We're losing an, an opportunity to have a strong, uh, indigenous, um, view an indigenous point. And we're poorer as a result if we don't have that opportunity. Um, so we're stronger when we have our, when we have Māori voice at the table. And so I really would like to push the idea that all councils are able to look at this opportunity. Even if perhaps there are very few Māori, I still think that that's still okay to have Māori representation on on councils that
3: may have smaller Māori populations. I still feel it's still relevant, particularly here living in Aotearoa.
2: So it's fair to assume that one of the outcomes that we're going to see from this reform process is a change in the electoral systems used to vote in your local councils. And it's really good in that it's designed to give you better representation. So if you have a look back on some of the past episodes that we've done, which include Māori representation, as well as SCV versus first-past-the-post and other forms of representation issues, you might get an idea as to how that's going to end up looking under these new laws. But there's also other things that we can look at to see how these laws are looking to shape up. And there's two really big ones that should jump right to the forefront for you. First one is the Three Waters proposal. So there's obviously been a lot in the news about the Three Waters proposal. We have two episodes on that available now that you can download from freefm.org.nz that look at the positive and negative implications of this. But the Three Waters model has already been cited by local government New Zealand as a potential way of seeing how this government is looking at reshaping the way that resource management works within local authorities. The second one to look at is actual resource management, the Resource Management Act changes that are coming in. And this is a bilateral policy change that's coming and being thrown into councils that they have to work around, which include the building of three-story structures within a really small space to try and create infill to try and help make sure that there's more housing stock out there. The two changes to the Resource Management Act and the Three Waters Bill are huge, and the implications for local councils are absolutely massive because there's ownership issues at stake, there's lending capabilities at stake, there's population control, and there's a lot of development around what that population increase is going to do for the way that a city council plans its things. You can learn more about that in our transport episode, where we looked specifically at how changing population bases change the way that cities look at how transport works. So already we know that the government changes to local body councils, are going to be pretty far-reaching in what their powers are and what they have the authority to do. But there's one really big concern that gets highlighted in the initial report that's really hard to get around. And that's distrust. Local, regional authorities do not trust central government. They never have, and they never will. And this current government has come under a lot of fire for not being as communicative as it possibly can be around any sort of changes. Highlight this sort of distrust. I actually asked Councillor Mark Bunting what he knew of the local government review, and this was his response. No. Well, I, I
3: personally haven't. Maybe the mayor has. Um, I know they're, they're doing the rounds up and down the country, but my concern is, and that goes right back to that water argument is, we were saying hold off until you've done your review of local government, until you've done your RMA reforms, until you've got your, um, Towati, uh, ta, um, your water authority sorted out, because then you know what you've got left to review. Um, at the moment, the way it's going, the way they're centralizing everything, I think we'll be about some, we'll be in charge
2: of grass verges and maybe a couple of playgrounds if we're lucky. And that concern about centralising everything, rushing to get through all these changes before the reforms are in place, is not something that Mark is alone on when it comes to having concerns about this entire process. Here's regional councillor Jennifer Nickel with almost exactly the same outlook. And so um,
1: I could see a lot of benefits in having this conversation when the um, future for local government work, uh, those reforms are um, closer to completion because really you're um, talking about taking infrastructure um, and how it's being managed um, from counsel- with councils um, that are unsure of their future from a reform process anyway. And so bringing that together would have been ideal, but I'm mindful that um, we should never wait for central government processes to finish to do anything.
2: Ironically, though, the idea of removing these choices from a local body and putting them into the hands of a central body or a larger body kind of actually originated in Kirikirau Hamilton. In 2013 to 2014, the council flip-flopped over fluoridation of the water supply. It went out to public consultation. There were a whole bunch of loud voices on one side who sort of overpowered the voices on the other side. Then there was a referendum. Then there was an anti-fluoride campaign voted onto council. It's been all over the place. And that kind of flip-flopping on decision-making has a Given really the push towards central government, going, you know what, sometimes we need to take these decisions out of people's hands because if we don't, there's going to be these ongoing issues which waste time, which cause all sorts of stress, and which cost money to the ratepayers. So it seems that no matter what you do, there's going to be a centralization of some services, fairly large-scale services, that's going to be taken away or redistributed, realigned, somehow reimagined to work with local government. And here's the tricky thing about anything related to taking away services that require physical assets. You can't take away the assets. You physically can't dig up all the pipes for the water supply and say, boom, boom done. They're ours now. It doesn't work that way. And there's actually an argument that could be put forward stating that centralizing these things gives them more of a mandate to work properly. On a local level, for example, we struggled to get 40% of people out there voting. This last election two years ago was the first time in nearly 30 years that we saw an increase in voter turnout. The mandate, though, is not huge versus the 80% of the population that voted for central government to make the changes that they feel are necessary. So there is an argument there around who's mandated to do what. And of course, we don't actually know yet exactly what's going to be centralized and what's going to be changed, which is really confusing and really frustrating for people working at a local government level. And this is kind of where distrust comes into play, with the distrust between local government and central government, elected officials and organisations and all the rest of it. There's so much on the plate at the moment for local government to look at and how changes work, and they have to be involved in how this new act is going to evolve and change things around them. And there's a lot to take on board, as Hamilton Mayor Paula Southgate points out.
1: Um, Local government reform, Free Waters reform, Resource Management Act reform, Some of these new uh, pieces of legislation around housing in the NPS, urban development, national policy statement, urban development, sorry, and uh, lots more. In the pipeline still, uh, national policy statement for biodiversity and a whole heap of things coming at us all the time from government. What we've got to do is sit back as local government leaders and have an open, polite, and engaged conversation about what makes us stronger How do we deliver local placemaking in a stronger and more cohesive way? Because that should inform our feedback to government.
2: The idea of collaboration between local government and central government comes out really strongly in this initial report and the reason for that is actually pretty simple. Local government, when it was set up under the current Act, was really set up to look after the well-being of its citizens and that's a really wide-ranging area to cover. That's things like climate change and uh, the amount of parks you've got and your water supplies and how your roads work and there's a ton of stuff that falls into this. But it's equally important that there's collaboration between the people who vote in your council and your council and central government, and this report highlights very specifically that that needs to be done in a better way. But one of the other things that it highlights in there quite prominently is just how much change there's expected over the next few years. By 2048, the population of New Zealand is expected to be close to 6.5 million people, and the two areas that are expected to have the largest amount of growth are Tamaki Makaurau, Auckland, And the Waikato region. So we're already expecting to see massive changes in that area. Now when it comes to the Waikato, Hamilton is the area that gets the most growth and we see a pull away from your smaller regions. And it's been like that for the last 50 years, an urban drift heading towards your larger centres. Which suddenly means that you have smaller authorities that have got less of a rating base because their people are moving on, which makes it harder for them to be able to fulfill the needs of looking after the well-being of their community. Councillor Dave McPherson has seen a few changes to local election rules and boundaries and everything that comes with law changes and how local councils work. So I sat down with him and had a quick chat about what he foresaw coming under these changes, including what's going to happen to these smaller councils that don't have such a large rating base anymore.
4: Yeah, there's going to be um, amalgamations or councils going to be grouped in some way, all of which could be a good idea depending how it's handled. Waitomo and Ota for example, too, i call them tin pot little councils. And in fact, Russ Remington was the first one to call that the regional council one day and someone from one of those tin pot little councils, at least I'm not on a crackpot council. I I think there will be amalgamations, but it depends how they handle it as to, A, whether they're viewed favourably and successfully, um, we, we're we working with our I don't think there's going to be much of a problem in some ways in the central Waikato because we're, for instance, we've got this big spatial planning exercise like the Auckland Plan. Mm-hmm. It's called the Met- Hamilton Waikato Metro Spatial Plan and it covers all of Waipa, uh, most of the Waikato district, some of the, not some of the stuff right up the north and all of Hamilton. And we've now included Morrinsville as well, Matamata Piako Council area, part of theirs in, in that everything centered on Hamilton, where Hamilton's the, the metro area servicing that and has big transport links to all of those places. And we were just talking at a meeting with us and Waikato <laughs> district council today about when we get, we get, planning, subdivision application, that sort of thing, from developers that are sometimes on the boundary of Hamilton, sometimes inside, more often not just outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the the hearing of the, that application in a resource consents in a way where Agreeing should be a joint hearing of two councils, because while they might be plonked in Waikato District, say, at Hara 2, where are they going to get
2: their services? In Hamilton. So it seems amalgamation of these smaller councils and these smaller territorial authorities is actually something that most councils Fear, but are expecting to have happen at some point in time. I sat down and spoke to former Hamilton West MP Tim McIndoe about this. He actually lived in the Waipa when it became the Waipa about 20 years ago. and This is his perspective on the idea of amalgamating these councils.
0: The arguments for and against have been pretty well canvassed over the years. Some of the smaller councils um, in the territorial authorities in our wider region, further away from Hamilton, have often been worried about being swallowed up. I do remember we lived in Cambridge about 20 years ago at the time of the big amalgamation between Cambridge and Tiawamutu resulted in the creation of Power, and that wasn't welcomed by a lot of people. But there were some powerful arguments in favour of amalgamation as well, not the least of which is encouraging greater um, use of shared services so that small councils aren't bearing the full cost of providing certain things that could cross across the current territorial lines. Uh, there also has to be a further look at pushing out the boundaries of Hamilton. That means encroaching, I guess, into areas currently under Waika, Waikato and Waipa. Uh, but Hamilton is just, you know, <laughs> literally bursting at the scene. There are plans for more. More land, I think, up in the northeast that's currently in the Waikato uh, District Council area to come into Hamilton in, I'm not sure exactly, whether it's another 15 years or so, uh, may may be wrong about that. I think that probably, from our point of view, in Hamilton, that needs to happen sooner. I understand that um, our colleagues in the other territorial authorities may not be so keen on that idea.
2: So it seems in many respects, Kirikirira Hamilton has already started planning for what could eventuate under these new law changes and new reforms that are coming into place. It's already looking at different ways to work with the area around the city. And to be fair, that's actually a really good relationship that's been going on for many years now. And it's something that is constant conversation going on about as well. But at the same time, there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to this law. And that's simply because we're still two and a half years out from when this law is supposed to come into play. It's not going to be until the 30th of September that the first full discussion document after all public consultation is done, that this report is going to have a much better idea as to what needs to be done and what those changes are going to be. And that's got to be nerve-wracking for some people. When it comes to being an elected representative, there's a whole bunch of questions about balancing what you're doing for the public and for the business and how everybody's going to balance everything out. It gets confusing. And having this great big question mark over the future of what's going to happen is a really difficult thing to cope with sometimes because you can't really plan ahead not knowing what's coming next. But sometimes, though, the thing that's worse than not knowing what's coming next is the idea or shadow of impending doom that seems to be looming without knowing what's behind casting that shadow. And for a lot of the elected officials that I've spoken to, it really comes down to the fact that they feel like central government is stepping in to take away a lot of the responsibilities about what they're doing, but they just don't know. As you've seen with this uh, particular administration in Wellington, they're not
3: that keen on local administration as as such. I think that's the indicators
2: that I'm taking from it anyway, and it's only my opinion. Change is coming. Reform is on its way, and there is very little at this point that anybody can do about it because there are two really big factors in play here. The first is nobody actually knows what that reform looks like because they're still in the very early stages of the pointy end of the stick of getting this organized. And the second thing is... Nobody really knows what the election's going to throw up over the next couple of election cycles. So there's a lot of ifs, buts and maybes around what's going to happen. There are some things that we can lock down, though, as being able to say, yeah, this is definitely going to be part of it. The centralization of a number of core services is looking to be a fairly large cornerstone of this document because that's what the government is doing now there's going to be amalgamations within different smaller local authorities because that's what's happened every time they've readjusted the borders in the past. And it's all designed to ensure that your rating base can afford the services that they need to hit those goals of looking after the citizens within those electoral boundaries. And look, there's a really good chance that for Kirikirira Hamilton, those boundaries are actually going to expand a little bit. And you're going to see a shrinking of some of the surrounding areas. And that's not a bad thing, and it's certainly not a scary thing. And while there have been moves in the past to create sort of a super city structure within the whole region, that's actually not a viable option either. The two very different areas. Your country part of the Waikato and your urban part of the Waikato have very different needs and requirements. It's not like Tamaki Makoto, Auckland with the super city, where they were basically lumped together and told, this is what you're doing. But now members of the super city wouldn't change a thing. They're quite happy with how it works because they've had time to get used to it. And whatever this reform brings, whatever changes it has, people will get used to that as well. And then in 20 to 30 years time, the law will probably be rewritten for a future that we have no way of being able to foresee right that's that topic done and dusted don't forget you can download this episode now on freefm.org.nz or wherever you get great podcasts we can listen live to the show on 89.0 until next week thank you very much for joining me and don't forget to download the previous episodes as well it'll give you some good ideas as to what's coming up with reforms have a great week for more episodes of big things ahead visit freefm.org.nz spotify or apple podcasts big things ahead is a free fm podcast